Chief Justice, may it please the court. I'm Giancarlo Conoparo. I'm Zach Smith. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Welcome back to SCOTUS 101. It's been another busy week at the court, so full steam ahead. And I'll kick things off with the orders. We had several new cases that the court agreed to hear for next term. One will consider a challenge to congressional district maps that the plaintiff alleges were racially gerrymandered. Another will decide if individual members of Congress have standing to sue agencies to force them to turn over documents that the members have asked for. And two will dive into the vague morass that is the Armed Career Criminal Act. Turning to opinions, another blockbuster week with six of them. I'll start with Twitter and Google. This was a unanimous decision, the Twitter case was, by Justice Thomas, where the court held that plaintiffs failed to state a claim that Twitter, Facebook, and Google aided and abetted ISIS, the terrorist group, by algorithmically promoting their videos. ISIS uploaded videos to these social media platforms, and the family of one of ISIS's victims sued those companies under the Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act. That act imposes liability on anyone who aids and abets terrorism, but it doesn't define that term. The Supreme Court held that the term has to be given its common law meaning, which is knowing and substantial assistance. The court held that knowing and substantial assistance can't be given to a transcendent enterprise, but has to be given with respect to a particular terrorist act. The court held here that the plaintiffs adequately pleaded aiding and abetting by alleging that the social media companies knew that their algorithms were promoting their videos, but that the plaintiffs failed to allege that the companies aided and abetted the particular attack that killed the victim whose family sued. In the companion case to this one, Google, the court simply remanded that decision to the court below in light of its decision in Twitter. Hmm. Very interesting. Next up, we have Andy Warhol Foundation for Visual Arts versus Goldsmith. Now, GC, how often can you say that multiple pictures of Prince, or the artist formerly known as Prince, made their way into a Supreme Court opinion? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Not often, I'd imagine, but they did here. This was a 7-2 decision by Justice Sotomayor, where she was joined by Justices Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, Barrett, and Jackson to reject the Andy Warhol Foundation's fair use defense in a dispute between it and photographer Lynn Goldsmith involving a picture she took of Prince. In 1984, Goldsmith granted Vanity Fair a one-time use permission to use a photo of Prince to illustrate a story about him. But Vanity Fair hired Andy Warhol to create a silkscreen based on that photograph, which ran in the story. Warhol, though, actually created 15 additional works from Goldsmith's Prince picture and later licensed one of those additional prints for a different story about Prince. You know, one of the things I learned from this case, who knew Prince was such a hot topic for <laughs> for magazine articles? A little before my time. Well, you know, go listen to Purple Range, you see. Um <laughs> Anyway, Goldsmith saw this latter story and informed the Andy Warhol Foundation that this use of her picture infringed on her copyright. The foundation disagreed, so Goldsmith sued. While the district court ruled in the foundation's favor, finding fair use, the Second Circuit disagreed, and the Supreme Court affirmed the Second Circuit. There are four statutory factors to determine whether use of a copyrighted work constitutes fair use, and and in its opinion, 
the court focused on the first of these factors, which considered the reasons for and the nature of the secondary use of the original work. Here, the court held that using the same image to illustrate other magazine stories about Prince is not only substantially the same purpose as the original, but that the copying use is of a commercial nature. Thus, this factor favored Goldsmith, and the Foundation could not assert a successful fair use defense. Gorsuch, joined by Justice Jackson, concurred to further explore this narrow question of statutory interpretation. And Justice Kagan, joined by Chief Justice Roberts, dissented. She said that Warhol's eye-popping silkscreen of prints is based on, but dramatically alters, an existing photograph. She also argued that the majority's narrow approach, quote, ill-serves copyright's core purpose of fostering creativity. Now, there is one other interesting thing to note about Kagan's dissent. It's garnered a lot of attention, and it's a footnote she dropped in her opinion, seemingly taking a shot at Justice Sotomayor, who authored the majority opinion. I think the footnote's interesting, and it's worth reading in whole. So here it is. Uh, listen up and see what you think. This is what Justice Kagan had to say. She said, One preliminary note before beginning in earnest. As readers are by now aware, the majority opinion is trained on this dissent in a way majority opinions seldom are. Maybe that makes the majority opinion self-refuting? After all, a dissent with no theory and no reason is not one usually thought to merit pages of commentary and fistfuls of comeback footnotes. In any event, I'll not attempt to rebut point for point the majority's varied accusations. Instead, I'll mainly rest on my original submission. I'll just make two suggestions about reading what follows. First, when you see that my description of a precedent differs from the majority's, go take a look at the decision. Second, when you come across an argument that you recall the majority took issue with, go back to its response and ask yourself about the ratio of reasoning to ipsy-dixit. With those two recommendations, I'll take my chances on readers' good judgment. That is spicy talk by Supreme Court terms. Oh, that, I mean, that's really spicy. Kagan can be spicy, uh, but that is um, – I've never seen something quite so sharp uh, and so personal, especially surprising uh, that she would make such an attack on Sotomayor, who is usually her ideological ally. Yeah, it really shows the depth of disagreement uh, that this case must have brought up between them. Yeah, hmm. Well, that brings us to the less spicy but still no less fascinating case <laughs> of Porcelli versus the IRS. This was a unanimous decision by the chief justice where the court held that the IRS can issue summonses to people without notice if it's doing so in the course of pursuing a collection action against someone else. So here the IRS was trying to recover money from a delinquent taxpayer and issued summonses to his banks asking not only for his information but the information of related third parties. The banks retorted, you can't do that to us without giving us notice under a particular statute because we aren't the people you're actually trying to get money from. The Supreme Court said under the statute it doesn't matter. All that matters is that the IRS is trying to collect money from someone. Justice Jackson, joined by Justice Gorsuch, concurred, emphasizing that the courts should be very careful not to interpret this decision as a dramatic expansion of the rule that notice is usually required. And one more case uh, that I'll mention, Amgen versus Sanofi. This was a unanimous decision by Justice Gorsuch where the court narrowed the scope of a patent law requirement called enablement. Now enablement is a requirement that patents contain enough information to enable someone with expertise in the field to be able to make use of the invention. In this case, uh, 
the patents at issue were drug patents over an entire genus of antibodies, potentially up to a quintillion. Uh, I didn't even know that was a number, but there you have it. A quintillion of potential antibodies. This, the court held, was not sufficiently specific that an expert could make use of the patent without undue experimentation. Essentially, the court said these patents amount to invitations to do research projects, but you can't actually use them. That is fascinating stuff, GC. Mm -hmm. Well, that brings us to our final opinion for this week, Ohio Adjutant General's Department versus Federal Labor Relations Authority. This was another 7-2 decision, and this time, Justice Thomas, joined by Roberts, Sotomayor, Kagan, Kavanaugh, Barrett, and Jackson, held that the Federal Labor Relations Authority properly exercised jurisdiction over an unfair labor practices dispute involving the Ohio National Guard, the Ohio Adjutant General, and the Ohio Adjutant General's Department, and a union representing dual-status technicians who are federal employees that work for the Guard. The court has previously described these dual-status technicians as, quote, rare birds who occupy both civilian and military roles. They must be National Guard members, but except when actively participating in drills, training, or deployment, they serve as civilian federal employees who are under the operational control of their state's adjutant general, now, an adjutant general is the head of the state's National Guard. When a labor dispute came up between the Ohio National Guard and the union that represents these individuals, the union asked the FLRA to resolve it. But the Ohio parties argued that the FLRA didn't have jurisdiction to resolve the dispute because it only has jurisdiction under the Federal Service Labor Management Relations Statute say that five times fast, <laughs> to resolve disputes between labor organizations and federal agencies. The Ohio parties argued that since they were not federal agencies, the FLRA lacked jurisdiction to decide the dispute. The court, though, disagreed and found that because ultimately the Department of Defense is clearly a federal agency under the statute and ultimately who the dual status technicians worked for, the FLRA had jurisdiction to hear the case. Justice Alito, joined by Justice Gorsuch, dissented, arguing that because the Ohio entities are not actually federal agencies, a proposition that the court does not dispute, the FLRA lacks jurisdiction to enter remedial orders against them. Right after this, my interview with Judge Jennifer Perkins. Conservative women, conservative feminists. It's true. We do exist. I'm Virginia Allen, and every Thursday morning on Problematic Women, Lauren Evans and I sort through the news to bring you stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women. That is women whose views and opinions are often excluded or mocked by those on the so-called feminist left. We talk about everything from pop culture to politics and policy. Search for Problematic Women wherever you get your podcasts. And we are also problematic on social media, so be sure to follow us on Instagram. We're pleased to be joined today by Judge Jennifer Perkins, who currently serves on the Arizona Court of Appeals. Judge, welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm uh, delighted to be here. I'm a, a longtime listener, so it's a, it's a real honor to be an interviewee. Well, excellent. Well, we appreciate you listening, and uh, I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Now, before we dive into your legal career, Judge, what made you want to be a lawyer? 
You know, uh, I, I actually don't remember a time that I did not want to be a lawyer. Um, you know, it was, it was sort of an, an ongoing end goal. Although most of my life, my experience with law was tied up more in the policy and political side. Uh, my, my parents actually met during college on a political campaign when they both traveled to the Republican National <laughs> Convention. Uh, my father worked his way through law school, uh, which was at George Washington University, as a staffer for Senator Pete Domenici, although perhaps interesting to you, during his final year, he moved over to briefly work at the Heritage Foundation before... Oh, fantastic. Uh, yeah, before he graduated and returned to New Mexico. Um, but I, I actually, my first work at a law firm, I was... Around age three or four, I began answering phones and formatting floppy disks. I don't know if, <laughs> if you're familiar with those the old school um, pieces of technology, um, but that was at my I dad's am, office. Unfortunately, yeah, <laughs> back in the day, uh, that was at my dad's office in Portales, New Mexico. Um, and around that time, I also worked on my first campaign when my dad ran for the state senate. Um, mm. So through throughout middle school and high school, I worked on and off at his law firm, and I regularly attended lunch with him and his peers. Um, I always loved hearing about different aspects of law and policy with threads of American history. Um, my, my dad's name is Mickey Barnett, and, and his knowledge of political history was comprehensive so that we actually – a friend of his dubbed him the Encyclopedia Barnettica. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he was he was very active with local conservative lawyers and um, with those who participated in the Federalist Society there. And I attended as many of those events as my parents would allow. So I always was sort of headed in the direction of law. Um, we even I, I actually have a picture of us resolving a sibling dispute with a court proceeding. My dad serving as judge <laughs> and my brother and I as our own advocates. Um, who won? <laughs> I think I usually won. I was a lot more aggressive. Uh, my brother is a lot nicer, <laughs> so to, perhaps to his detriment. Um, I, I did take a, a brief detour in uh, high school. I got uh, involved in athletic training, and for a brief time, I thought I might become a trainer for the Dallas Cowboys, but, ah. but law did win out uh, in the end. Well, very good. Now, I know you mentioned you grew up in New Mexico, and then I know you attended undergrad at George Washington in D.C. and law school at SMU in Dallas. But when you graduated from law school, you initially returned uh, back to New Mexico to practice law. Why did you decide to go back to New Mexico? You know, I, I had entered law school with an eye toward, um, you know, big firm practice, perhaps a focus on international law. My um, undergraduate degree from GW is in international affairs. Um, but by the end of my second year of law school, I became more focused on the opportunities available to associates in a smaller firm. Um, I'd been very involved with moot court and mock trial competitions, and I hoped for the, uh, you know, an opportunity to gain real litigation, perhaps appellate litigation um, experience sooner rather than later. Uh, but the fall of my third year, uh, we experienced the 9-11 tragedy. And mm -hmm. I, I think as with many people, that sort of refocused me to think more about doing something that I thought, you know, sort of matters. I, I began to think more about public interest work and, and where the law could be helpful um, in, in that regard. Um, I, I spent law school, my last two years of law school, as the Federal Society student chapter president, and that mm. through that experience, I met Clark Neely from the Institute for Justice. We had him out as a speaker. 
And so I, I followed that up. I, I applied to work for the Institute for Justice at the headquarters office in D.C., mm-hmm. had the opportunity to interview there, and, and that made me want the job even more. Um, I would say now with a perspective of hindsight, fortunately, I did not get it, which mm-hmm. uh, found me a little bit uncertain what to do next. So I returned to New Mexico. You know, I had more connections there, and I, I wanted to kind of refocus and figure out longer term, sure. you know, prospects. I ended up at the law firm Browning, what's called at that time Browning and Pfeiffer, which uh, was a civil litigation firm as a small firm. And I had the opportunity to work on class actions and, you know, employment and business disputes. And I really enjoyed the work, but I I think perhaps more um, providentially, James Browning, Jim Browning, my my boss there, Mm -hmm. was appointed to the federal bench. Mm. at the end of my first year with that firm. And he invited me to serve as his his first law clerk. Fantastic. Well, what was that experience like serving as Judge Browning's first law clerk? You know, I I really, especially looking back, I'm just really blessed to have had that experience. You know, for one thing, it it actually began several months early in one sense because, you know, I'm, I'm at the firm with Judge Browning going through this confirmation process, which, uh, you know, it perhaps then wasn't as, as, as sticky and difficult as it, as it has gotten now. Sure. But he did receive a list of about 75 follow-up questions from his Judiciary Committee interview. Um, and I had the opportunity to work with him on preparing those answers, which was a, a just kind of a unique experience to talk with, you know, a, a soon-to-be judge about his thoughts on such a wide range of, of issues that might um, come up or that were were relevant to sure. the the process of serving as a judge. Um, also, we you know once we started that was in August of two thousand three, so coming up on twenty years ago. Um, yeah, we learned on the job. <laughs> we had to <laughs> we had to come up with our chambers practices and policies. We had to think about you know hiring and case assignments and right. you know all of those things. I, I think at one point I was on a first name basis with the ethics council at the judicial conference, <laughs> uh, just trying to make sure we were doing everything well. Um, you know, Judge Browning actually he spoke at my investiture five years ago and said that a lot of the practices I helped set up remain in place. So that's that's gratifying. Well, that's fantastic. Are there any traditions that Judge Browning established with his clerks uh, that you took part in while you worked for him? You know, uh, it it was that first year, and we were were under a lot of um, pressure because we inherited sort of the older cases from folks. And Judge Browning was very, very mindful of the need to resolve matters expeditiously. You know, he had been a litigator and really appreciated that. So I'd say the closest thing we had— to a real tradition that first year is he, he really did not like having things appear on the internally circulated pending list for very okay. long. So the last couple of days of every month typically became a marathon session for us. I can, I can remember more <laughs> than one occasion, my co-clerk who had a, I think they were a two and four at the time, her children would be sleeping on the couches in the office while we were powering through, uh-huh. um, I'm not going to say that I have adopted that around the clock marathon as a tradition and, um, (laughs) but, but I did appreciate that opportunity to kind of connect well with my, with my clerk and with the staff as a whole with the judge. Sure. Well, I guess the follow-up judge Perkins, do you have any traditions that you've established uh, with your clerks or with others in your chambers? You know, we don't, we don't have any really big, you know, I listen to your interviews and I've, I've actually been 
inspired to kind of look for something more more interesting to do as an ongoing <laughs> tradition. Um, we, we do little things. You know, I, I'm from New Mexico and I love green chili. Um, and mm. so I, I try to bring in breakfast burritos for staff when someone has a birthday. Uh, there's a local restaurant that is um, owned by folks from New Mexico and they and they feature green chili in their burritos. Oh, um, and I, I have a, home, a Christmas party in my home each year that I that I host my staff and their families. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, I can say based on previous interviews, uh, barbecue seems to be a popular tradition. Yeah, that is <laughs> Wherever true. Wherever you go. <laughs> uh, now, after your clerkship, I know you did end up working for the Institute for Justice in their Arizona office. How did this opportunity come about, and what was that experience like? Well, um, about two months before I started my clerkship, I met a man named John who lived in Arizona. And we, we ended up dating long distance while I clerked, but it uh, sparked my interest in Arizona. And during my clerkship, the Institute for Justice Arizona chapter posted a uh, job opportunity. And so it seemed to be, you know, sort of things coming together in my life. It was my dream job. It would allow sure. me to be in the same city as John. So that was how the, the opportunity arose. Um, I, I managed to... I managed to you know, went out on that, on that second round of interviews at the Institute for Justice. Excellent. Well, did you have any notable experiences or cases from your time at IJ? Uh, well, I know you're familiar with IJ, so you uh, probably can appreciate that, that all the cases are fairly notable and interesting. Right. Um, right. You know, I'll, I'll mention um, three quickly. My, one of my first cases as lead counsel here in Arizona involved a challenge to the licensing requirements from what was then known as the state's Structural Pest Control Commission. Um, okay. Essentially, through that body, the state required yard maintenance workers to have three separate licenses that were prohibitively difficult to obtain. And this was in order to spray weed killer, sort of like Roundup, that sure. same product you and I can buy from a retail store. Mm. Um, that was a case we actually ended up resolving through the legislature because once the members of the legislature caught wind, they were... Um, sort of shocked <laughs> at right, these zealous right. um, efforts of the SPCC. And and actually, it resulted a couple of years later, um, the entire agency, the legislature sunset the agency. It no longer exists here in Arizona. Mm. Um, the, the critical functions exist within this Department of Agriculture, but sure. I, I like to count that as one of my scalps. Um, That's a pretty big one, uh, a whole uh, <laughs> yeah. agency. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a fairly zealous one. A second case that I uh, took lead on involved a local venue called Santan Flat. It's located on the southeast edge of um, the Phoenix metro area. And without getting into too many unnecessary details, the nearby neighbors and members of the county board um, of supervisors had been targeting the venue with a variety of complaints. They were sort of newcomers to the neighborhood. But the county ultimately decided to prosecute the venue for violating a decades-old dance hall ordinance. Mm which required dance halls to be completely enclosed. See, the venue had a live music uh, stage and a small area, you know, which could allow dancing, and sure. there was no roof over that area. It was completely encircled by buildings, but there was no roof, so it was not completely enclosed. Now, a lot of folks referred to this as a modern-day footloose story, and one of them <laughs> was Drew Carey, who covered the story for Reason oh, wow. TV. There's, there's actually still a video on, um, on YouTube about that, about the case. Well, we'll have to go check it out. 
Yeah, it's, it was good. Uh, and it's the last one that I'll note is I had the opportunity to work on a series of cases around the country challenging interior design licensing schemes. And mm. yes, you heard that correctly. Licenses <laughs> to practice. <laughs> Some states to practice, most states just to use the words interior designer. Are you saying I, bad taste could be criminal <laughs> in some apparently, cases? Apparently, that was a big concern. Now, in 2009, I know you did leave the Institute of Justice when you became the disciplinary counsel for the Arizona Commission on Judicial Conduct, uh, where you reviewed and prosecuted ethics complaints against state court judges. How did that move come about? You know, I, I really loved um, my time with IJ, but it was a very demanding schedule litigation schedule, and particularly as it involved uh, a lot of regular travel um, all, all over the country. Sure. The opportunity at the commission came up and that provided a chance to try something new, you know, very new and, and interesting, but it also involved a predictable schedule and almost no travel. Sure. Well, I can imagine you probably have some good war stories <laughs> from your time mm. uh, in that position. Uh, do you have any uh, particular uh, war story that comes to mind? Um, you know, probably probably my biggest case, just in terms of of the amount of, of effort and work, um, is an interesting story, partly because of what was happening with me personally at the time. So I'll just say that the Commission on Judicial Conduct, when a case moves from from just sort of an informal investigation and informal complaint into a more formal, serious case, it looks a lot like traditional litigation. There are formal charges filed. It culminates in a, a trial or a hearing um, in front of multiple commission members sitting in a panel. In late 2011, I had a, a case started against a local justice of the peace that turned into a formal case with formal charges. Um, the timing meant that the trial or hearing would occur in the late spring of 2012. On January 9th, 2012, I can remember quite clearly, I went in to tell my boss I had exciting news. I was pregnant, but that hmm. wouldn't mean that we would need to begin figuring some things out. There's only one disciplinary counsel for the commission, so we sure. would need to you know, maybe, maybe hire outside counsel when I had time off or, or delay handling certain things such as a formal hearing. So that sort right. of started the conversation there. That day, I walked out of his office and went to leave the courthouse to participate as a speaker in a new judge orientation session, and I slipped on the front steps of the court and shattered my left ankle, oh, no. um, which was painful and terrible, but also just, to be completely honest, really embarrassing. They sent a a ladder truck with sirens blaring that circled the courthouse and it was it was uh, very well. It was very public. memorable. Certainly, <laughs> it's <was> very memorable. <laughs> um, so I, I had surgery. I, I still have ten screws and a metal plate uh, in my left ankle. Um, but this case was going on during that time, and we were engaged in you know some discovery and some battles. Um, but thankfully, we were we were able to move quickly, so we managed to get to the two day hearing um, when I was about seven and a half months pregnant. So we didn't end up having mm -hmm. to hire outside counsel for it. Um, it, it was a difficult case in, I, you know, this is some, something about Arizona that's different from a lot of states. We, uh, at least Eastern states, we have these justices of the peace. They do not have to be lawyer. So this was a non-lawyer judge yeah. who made a series of sort of escalating bad choices. Um, and I felt very empathetic toward him personally, but I was, I was convinced that he should not remain on the bench. It was a difficult 
two-day hearing mostly physically. <laughs> I had sure, a of swollen ankle and I was very pregnant, but um, ultimately the commission agreed with me and recommended that the Supreme Court remove him from the bench, which, which the court did. Hmm. Now, I know after your position as the disciplinary counsel, you spent a brief period in private practice before you joined the Arizona Attorney General's office as the first assistant solicitor general. What made you want to take on this role? I um, was was privileged to get to know Mark Burnovich when we both served on our local um, Federal Society's leadership board here in Arizona. And so when he won election um, in 2014 as attorney general, I met with him about opportunities in the office, and it turned out he was looking for someone with an ethics background. Mm. Um, so that turned out to be an, a, a great fit and a way to sort of bring my experience to bear um, he also wanted someone to head up the attorney general opinions process, which was something I was very interested in doing. Um, the AG Burnovich also created a federalism unit here in Arizona, which was housed in the solicitor general's office. I was not formally a part of that unit, but I had the opportunity to collaborate on a number of projects with the federalism unit folks. Um, and so that, that sort of very interesting portfolio is what really brought me over, um, you know, out of my brief stint in private practice back into the public sector. Sure. And what types of issues did that federalism unit work on? Um, well, at the time, so this was when we had, um, you know, a, a Democrat administration in Washington and a, a Republican AG and a Republican administration in Arizona. So there was a lot of litigation sort of both ways. Um, sure. There were challenges to uh, some of the EPA regulations that we worked on as a parts of multi-state coalitions. Um, there were rulemaking processes that, that the federalism unit had a chance to weigh in on. Now, uh, and on sort of defense, the, the federalism unit worked with some of our state agencies to defend against um, overreach from the federal government. So it was a, a multifaceted um, opportunity. Excellent. Excellent. Now, in 2017, Governor Doug Ducey appointed you to your current position on the Arizona Court of Appeals. How did that come about? Well, a, a year before that, um, Governor Ducey's general counsel at the time, who is now Judge Mike Liberty, and I had breakfast. We had, we had known each other for some time. And he asked me, just in the course of the breakfast, if I had ever c considered applying to be a judge. Um, Candidly, I had thought my long service with the Federalist Society, coupled with my work prosecuting judges for ethical complaints, may have made a political appointment not so uh, likely. But <laughs> Mike encouraged me to apply, and I and I did so. Um, it took a few rounds with the nominating commission here in Arizona before the the governor appointed me in late 2017. Fantastic. Now, I know in Arizona, appellate judges stand for retention elections every six years or earlier, depending on the vacancy you filled. Now, I believe you successfully run retention in November of 2020. What was that experience like, uh, running for retention? You know, it's, a, it's not pleasant. <laughs> it's a very disconcerting <laughs> process. Um, you know, as, as you point out, Arizona has what they, they call a, you know, sort of quote unquote merit selection process. Um, we've had that for about 50 years here. And the idea was to move away from a partisan election process for judges. Right. Um, but in my experience, we have unfortunately been kind of moving back in that direction with a, with a more political process and some partisan involvement. 
Um, except it's kind of one-sided because there are fairly strict limits on what judges can say or do in the context of a retention election. So there's not sure. a lot of opportunity to defend yourself. Um, it's it's unseemly and fraught with ethical questions to, to actually engage in any kind of what somebody would consider campaigning. So um, in 2020, there was some partisan money spent opposing a number of Governor Ducey's appointees, in, including me, um, the, the two main reasons I saw as to why I was included on that list were my affiliation with the Federalist Society and my previous work for the Institute for Justice, which I guess they viewed as disqualified mm. um, characteristics, which is you know unfortunate. Now, I, 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 I don't remember my exact vote total, but I think I had 65 percent or more of the of the vote, which, you know, so it wasn't even really a close race, but sure. it's a it's a disconcerting process. Well, you successfully uh, were retained, so congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Until you're up again. <laughs> right, right. Six years. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Now, I did want to ask you a, a substantive question before we end our conversation today, because I noticed you've participated in a symposium discussing originalism and the Arizona Constitution. So I wanted to ask, what role do you think originalism plays while interpreting state constitutions and does it differ from the role it plays while interpreting the U.S. Constitution? You know, I think originalism, as it's properly understood, plays a critical role in constitutional interpretation at both the state and federal level. Um, in my experience, I'll be honest, I think it's to some degree a more interesting exercise at the state level because I'm in a state that amends its constitution regularly. <laughs> so sure. part of that originalism in the Arizona Constitution um, symposium that we put on, you know, we covered, there were, there were three different panels, four speakers per panel, and every speaker had a different aspect of the Arizona constitution. And all of them were looking at different time frames, or most of them mm. were, you know, we adopted our state constitution in 1914, uh, ultimately, but there are provisions that we discussed, you know, passed as, as recently as the, as the 1990s. And sure. so, you know, where the original public meaning resources come, you know, what, what resources we're considering and what time frame we're considering is, uh, spans quite a bit for a state constitution that is, that is so, um, robust. It doesn't fit sure. in your pocket. <laughs> um, and you know, I'll, I'll just say, I'm also very grateful because right now I have quite a number of colleagues on the Court of Appeals and, and friends upstairs on the Arizona Supreme Court who appreciate and follow the same approach. We, we look at things from an originalist and textualist pr perspective. Um, mm. And so we get to help each other bear it in mind when we grapple with, with tough cases. Fantastic. Well, Judge, I have a final question. We ask all of our guests on SCOTUS 101. Uh, since you're a regular listener, you probably know <laughs> what I'm going to ask. <laughs> yeah. uh, if you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would it be and what would you talk about? So I was talking to my husband about this. I said, of course, I've been thinking about this question. And I've, I always come back to the same two possible answers. Um, Joseph Story is somebody I've just always been fascinated with. He's appointed at age 34. And I kind of wonder if he ever struggled with, you know, having a sense of perspective, given his limited experience in both law and in life, um, sure. being so young. You, you certainly don't see that from what he wrote, um, but I think it would be an interesting conversation. But at the end of the day, I, I do keep coming back to the same 
you know, final answer, which is Clarence, Justice Clarence Thomas. Mm. Um, I, I remember watching his confirmation hearings uh, when I was in high school, and I'm just really a huge fan. His writing style is one that I try to emulate because I know he he seeks to be accessible to the average person, and I think that's a really important thing. Um, he has a fascinating personal story. He has probably the best laugh of anyone I've right. ever heard. Uh, and he writes a lot, often pinning what I think are critical concurrences and dissents. And, and frankly, that's what I would love to talk about. I would love to talk with him about, you know, his process for approaching those separate writings, you know, when to write and, and how he approaches that process. Fantastic. Well, those are both excellent choices, uh, Judge Perkins. So well done. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. And thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's been a fascinating conversation and we'd love to have you back again in the future. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to talk with me, Vibe, and I've really enjoyed it. Well, Zach, that brings us to my favorite part of the show and your favorite part of the show, I dare submit, trivia. Mm. Now, GC, no, uh, no, no, what no, evidence no, no, do you no, have no, to support that? You don't, you don't need <laughs> to say anything. Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, let's see what you got for me this week. All right. Usually, SCOTUS opinions are pretty serious things, Kagan footnotes aside. But sometimes you'll get a joke and a dissent or a concurrence, but judicial opinions typically are not places for humor. Sometimes, however, the cases themselves are just too funny not to laugh, and I have selected a few of my favorite funny cases for trivia. Are you ready? Let's see what kind of warped sense of humor you have, GC. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, question number one. Who is the funniest justice? And this is actually – there is actually a right answer to this question. Well, you got to give me a little more uh, information, GC. Are we talking on the bench, off the bench? Are we talking current justices, previous justices? Uh, what's my uh, realm of possibilities here? We're going to say recent justices on the bench. Okay, but they don't necessarily have to be current justices. Correct. Well, you know, I would think Justice Thomas is a pretty funny guy. He has a great sense of humor, but he doesn't talk much from the bench. Uh, I'm going to go with Justice Scalia since he was famous for mixing it up with his advocates <laughs> and occasionally uh, getting a laugh from the crowd. Yes, you're right. Uh, and not just occasionally. In fact, there was a study done that looked at how many times the notation laughter appeared in the oral <laughs> argument transcripts. And Justice Scalia was far and away uh, the source of the most of them. God bless that court reporter who took the time to notate <laughs> laughter in the transcript. <laughs> All right. So turning now to the actual funny cases, uh, question number one is, who is Peaches? This question was at the heart of a fairly recent case, 2018, holding that officers had probable cause to arrest raucous and debaucherous partygoers. Do you remember what that case was? I do not, but I'm fascinated to hear more. <laughs> sure. The case was uh, District of Columbia versus Westby. Police responded to a noise complaint about a house party. They arrived to a wild scene. The opinion is written by Justice Thomas. You can tell he had quite a lot of fun writing these facts. But uh, to summarize, the house was trashed. Furniture was in unusual places and very unusual orientations. Guests were in various stages of intoxication and undress. Nobody knew what the party was for. Uh, some people <laughs> thought that it was somebody's bachelor party, but nobody know, knew who the lucky man was. Nobody knew who had given them permission to be there. Everyone claimed that somebody else had invited them, but nobody knew who it was. Two of the guests thought that somebody named Peaches had invited them, but there wasn't anyone named Peaches at the party. 
In the end, the officers got these alleged peaches on the telephone, but it was very obvious that whoever she was, she had no right to be in the house uh, and that she and uh, everyone else probably knew it too. Well, that sounds like a, a fascinating case and a, a fascinating party in a lot of ways. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The next case, Bertman versus J.A. Kirsch involved which of the following things? Rotten Tomatoes, Superman, childish behavior by the United States government, or pure judicial <laughs> sassiness? Well, I know your love for trick questions, GC, so <laughs> I'm suspecting it may had, have had a little bit of all of those things. Yes, that's involved. correct. A safe, a safe bet. Now, this uh, this case, equal parts amusing and frustrating. The United States government sued Mr. Bertram because tomatoes he had sold them arrived spoiled. But it was not his fault. It was the shipping company's fault, and Bertman won in the lower courts. But the United States government decided it was going to be childish about this. And under the old rules of civil procedure, both a notice of appeal and the response to it had to be filed within 60 days. So the government waited to file its notice at the last minute on the 60th day. Bertman's response was ruled untimely. He appealed to the Supreme Court, which refused to hear his case. This prompted a very sassy dissent from Justice Hugo Black, who wrote, I am aware of the argument that an able, alert, ever-diligent lawyer could have, had he tried hard enough, discovered that the government had appealed, even in the closing hours of the 60th day. I do not doubt that had Bertman's counsel been Superman, his X-ray eyes would have told him that a notice of appeal was being filed blocks <laughs> away in the courthouse. Or had he been a lawyer with no clients but Bertman, he could have spent the 60th day hovering at the clerk's office to see whether the government would file a notice of appeal. But Bertman's counsel, so far as the record shows, is not Superman, nor should the law expect him to be. Very interesting. And I'm guessing this case was in the days before uh, electronic filing Correct. was uh, ever present. All right. Fourth question. Returning to our funniest justice, in a case about how the Americans with Disabilities Act applied to the requirements for a particular sports competition, Justice Scalia said the case forced the justices to confront an awesome responsibility and a solemn duty. What was the <laughs> solemn duty and awesome responsibility? What was the sport, did you see? Well, that actually is the right answer to the question. <laughs> because the question was, I couldn't give you the title of the case because it gives it away. But the question, the great solemn question is, what is golf? So I'm going to give you that question, Zach. You had the right answer. What is the sport? What is golf? Well, sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. I'll take it. Thank you. <laughs> the case involved the question of whether a disabled golfer had a right to use a cart during a competition when the rules required walking. The court said yes. Uh, Justice Scalia thought that the court didn't have that power, and he ribbed the majority, saying, The court ultimately concludes, and it will henceforth be the law of the land, that walking is not a fundamental aspect of golf. Seems about right to me. Uh, well, very interesting trivia this week, uh, GC. Uh, you know, some would say it's uh, it's no laughing matter, uh, those oh, questions you posed. Oh, get off the air. <laughs> uh, well, on that note, uh, that's all we have for today. So thank you to everyone for listening to SCOTUS 101. Please be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. And as always, we'd appreciate it if you left us a five-star rating. You can follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS101 and email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. Case is submitted. 
You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Giancarlo Canaparo and Zach Smith. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.